through this book that deals with so many subjects uh, for the church as well as just uh, the Christian life in general. And uh, we're spending a little bit extra time in chapter 6 uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, it covers uh, just a, a host of subjects in some way, but also because it is so prevalent, it's needed uh, today. And some of the things that are going on today. And so we uh, camped out a little bit with verses 9 and uh, through uh, 12 uh, over the last couple of weeks. And we want to just kind of pick up again in chapter 10 as we go, or chapter, verse 10 as we uh, go into verse 12, covering uh, the uh, verse 10 that we didn't really deal with specifically last week. But by way of review, we saw that sexual sins are some of the most damaging that man has had to battle since the beginning. The Bible uh, speaks about these things either as if uh, in, in the accounts as they're given, we see people falling into these sins, or as we're seeing in our text as Paul specifically addresses these things. And one of the reasons for that is because it is one of the things, sins that Mankind so easily falls into it. Something that we see when we get these things wrong, society crumbles, and uh, that's why it is something that's so prevalent today. Uh, we also saw that there is to be an acceptance of one's gender, and it is a role for both men and women. It is not. It is the height of arrogance and sin to say, "I will not." live my life and identify myself by the way God has made me and that that is something that causes great destruction in one's life and so men are to embrace and act like biblical men and women are also to embrace their God-given roles and it is a particularly serious sin when we confuse those roles so we have tried to deal with these things uh, over the last couple of weeks we begin to define more clearly these sinful lifestyles that are listed in verses 9 and 10. Uh, they cannot be, they cannot describe Christians. It doesn't mean that a Christian can't commit these sins, but they cannot be lifestyles. A Christian will not live uh, a lifestyle that can be described in these sins. We understand they're wrong. The Holy Spirit will bring repentance uh, when we find these things in us. And so in one sense, all these sins are a result of confusion when it comes to who God is. It is to uh, any of these sins, we can look at that and say, when you commit these things, you are forgetting who you are, who, what God has made you. You have forgotten that you are here to serve the Lord with all of your heart, mind, body, and soul, and to love your neighbor. And all these sins, in one way or another, are a sin against these things. <clears throat> Instead against who we are. Every one of these lifestyles is a failure to love God or your neighbor or yourself as you should. And ultimately it is the only way to fulfill the law of God and what defines sin. In other words, uh, if, if I am to love God with all my heart and to love my neighbor as myself, you read each one of these and it's very easy to see how they fail in one way or another, I mean, they stealing. If I steal, I am putting myself over others. I am putting myself over God. I am uh, not doing them good. I am doing them harm, right? So 
that's probably one of the most obvious ones. And it, it, all these can be uh, used like that. I think then that all this deals as effectively as we can, uh, all the things that we've been dealing with over the last couple of weeks, deal as effectively as we can, not that, not that a whole lot more can be said, but as effectively as I can right now with the whole problem of homosexuality, same-sex uh, attraction going on in any more detail, I think really, in one sense, is unnecessary, since the issue isn't just the act, but, but the fact that it is a refusal to accept the roles God has ordained from the beginning. In other words, once I understand that how God made me and the roles that he has defined in Scripture is what I want to do in order to please him, then I'm not going to have any problem with any of these other any of these sins. I mean, I might have temptations and struggles, but I, I clearly understand how to view these things. It's interesting, I, I was reading here recently that 14 of the 15 first Roman emperors were engaged in this activity. I think, if I remember correctly, Nero was the one who did not, which was interesting in and of itself. Socrates and Plato engaged in it. And so it's an ancient problem, always has been, as all sins are. And don't let anyone tell you that Paul, and certainly Jesus, didn't understand the issue. I mean, Paul didn't write this. God, This is God's word. God made us. God understands perfectly well what same-sex attraction is, what homosexual activity is. And uh, some have tried to use this to say, well, Paul was uh, railing against uh, homosexual activity outside of marriage. And so as long as you uh, are married, it's okay. Uh, no, because God has defined marriage as a union between one man and one woman. So homosexuals can't be married to each other. They can pretend to be, but it's a it's a profaning of marriage. Two men and two women cannot get married. And so we just need to be very clear about that. But this also makes dealing with the remaining sins pretty obvious. As we look at each one of these in verse 10, it becomes clear why these things cannot be practiced and loved at the same time, you cannot practice love and any of these things at the same time. I mean, for instance, drunkenness causes us to do things that we would not ordinarily do to, to besmirch the name of Christ. And again, it, all, it always goes back to uh, how you are serving the Lord and one another. Revilers. You know, a reviler is someone who slanders somebody else, who is mean, who, who doesn't care about somebody else, who causes harm, who hates others. He, he's a reviler. He reviles others. I mean, it's, it's, it couldn't be more obvious that that is not something that a Christian who lives by the law of Christ uh, would commit. And so the last part of this chapter is important enough, to, uh, to, as we start into verse 12, is important enough for us to spend another couple of weeks in it as well, as it will kind of bring some of these things that we've been studying to a conclusion. And so as we come to uh, verse 12, Paul says something that is immediately strikes us as interesting at least, 
perhaps it might even sound to us a little contradictory. All things are lawful for me. Well, he just got through listing several things that clearly are not lawful for a Christian, right? So he says, all things are lawful for me. But we're going to notice that as he makes these uh, these statements, he puts qualifiers upon them. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, he repeats. But I will not be enslaved by anything. And then we'll get into this more next week, but he makes another statement that is interesting. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. But God will destroy both one and the other. So it's an extremely interesting, but and also I think an extremely important uh, text of Scripture because it, it as I've entitled uh, our sermon today, Christian Freedom, it helps us understand how we are free in Christ and yet that we still are under a form of law. We are under the law of God. But what that law is, is something that Christians have debated for 2,000 years. And we want to begin our study with that as we move through the book. That We will find chapter 8 and chapter 10. This will be coming back to this chapter 9 to this subject. But we will begin our look uh, uh, of Christian freedom today, starting in verse 12. And so it's interesting that right after he lists these things that we cannot do, that he says that all things are lawful for me. And this is going to take some time to unpack, and we'll do this as we go through the book. What is he doing, though, is repeating uh, catchphrases, as it were. I think there he's repeating phrases that he has spoken to the Corinthians, but the Corinthians are have taken them and have gone way too far. Lord, I think Paul has taught the Corinthians that we are no longer under the law. And, you know, we find that several places in Scripture. We're no longer under the Mosaic law of God, right? And, and so since we're not under that law, Paul dealt with this with the Romans in uh, Romans chapter 5 and 6. People realize that by grace we are saved, not by how we live. And so uh, let's sin so that God can be gracious to him. He, he has to forgive us our sins that he, and God can display his grace to us. And Paul says, no, wait just a minute. That's not the point. We're not, you cannot be saved by doing good works, but God saves us so that we can do good works, so that we can now start living as Christ lived and, and, uh, and, and to uh, serve him. And so they're taking these... Uh, truths that Paul has spoken and they have gone to places that they should not go. Uh, in fact, it, it might be a connection back to them going to court uh, before the world with each other, they suing each other before the world. They seem to have this idea that if it's legal out there in the world, then it's okay for us to do it. So all things are lawful because in court there wasn't pretty, there wasn't really a ban against any kind of bad behavior. Certainly not sexual behavior. And so all things are lawful. And Paul says, no way, just a minute. That's not how a Christian thinks. There's us, we, we are under law, but there's a, but that's something that the new, the new testament unpacks for us. So they were, uh, taking Paul's words and using them out of context. And so, uh, we're going to find this also in chapter 10. 
where Paul's going to uh, also repeat some of these things as well. But in chapter 10, Paul says, For eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And Paul is saying, look, God created everything. Therefore, everything is good and everything is ours. So you're free to use the world, but not everything can be used in a way that honors the Lord. There are certain ways in which things are to be used. And that's why you get to verse 13. They were taking this phrase, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, which is true, right? But Paul says, wait just a minute, uh, both are going to be destroyed in, uh, someday. And so there is something more important here. And I, I don't, I'm going to say that for next week because that will get us way off course. But it's a very similar thing going on here. Christian liberty is freedom from something, but not without limits. And I'm going to try to um, uh, deal with that specifically today. To teach uh, very clearly that Christianity, the Bible teaches very clearly that Christianity is not a cloak for sinful activities. So quoting, I am free in Christ, does not mean that I am free to do whatever I feel like doing. And again, that it is very often used like that, always has been by some, and certainly today, and we got to be very careful not to do that. Paul quotes three such phrases, repeating the first one again in chapter 10, but then adds a qualifier, qualifier to each to clarify the full truth of Christian freedom. So he, he says, all things are lawful for me. The food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And they were using that to say, look, just as uh, you know, food is meant for the stomach so I can eat whatever I want to eat to satisfy my hunger, so clearly... Parts of my body are meant for sex, so I can use, uh, I can have sex because that's clearly what God created it for. And Paul's going to say, no, 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 you are completely missing the point of what's going on. Then in chapter 10, he'll say, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we just dealt with that. So, he never nullifies freedom. He doesn't say, uh, no, all things aren't lawful for you, even though there's, in a sense, that's true. But what he does do is say, okay, all things are lawful, but there's a certain way to think about what is what uh, that means for a Christian. So he never nullifies Christian freedom, but it because it's fundamental to understand what Christ did on the cross and who we are in him. Christian freedom, first of all, is that Christ has saved us from the condemnation of sin. The guilt of sin leaves us condemned before the Lord. And Christ has removed that sin in the cross, and we are free from the wrath of God. We are free from the condemnation of sin. But we, that's not all that Christian freedom is. That's, that's how some want to use it. We're also been freed from the dominion of sin. When we're born to this world, we are lost in our sin. We are slaves to sin. And, and when God saves us, he frees us from having to be dominated by that sin. And it's funny that there are a lot of people who don't really want to deal with that. They want to just say, well, I live under grace, so now God really doesn't care what I do. He just wants me to be happy. And that's just not the truth at all. There's some good 
there are no good reasons to do wrong. And so, all, this all is connected to, I think, as I said before, probably to these lawsuits that we dealt with in chapters, uh, earlier in chapter 6. They appear to equate, the Corinthians appear to equate morality with legality. If it's legal, it's moral. And they're even willing to accept the legal opinions of the Corinthian judges with regarding disputes among other believers. But why not let, why shouldn't we let legality uh, dictate morality? Well, first of all, legality is, is set up by the world, by the, the civilization. And that, what has that got to do with what God says necessarily, right? And so, if, if one can accomplish such a gigantic logical leap, that a Christian can virtually do anything that the pagans around them do. Which is exactly what we see by so many who call themselves Christians. They're taking their cues from right and wrong by the culture around them. And of course, they make a grave mistake in thinking that morality can be separated from spirituality. In other words, morality arises from what is in my heart, not by what's going on around me. We have recently, I think, faced something akin to this here in our day with the government setting up laws for the church and expecting them to obey. The church has recently made up some laws and said, now we expect the church to obey that. It's, it's, it, and it's really prevalent in Canada right now, for instance, when the church says, no, uh, we'll let God determine what we are to do, uh, they think they can step in and tell the church what to do. So the, 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 the laws around us do not set up what is right and wrong for a Christian. Now, to when the laws around us are right and okay, then we certainly want to obey them. But they don't set morality. Another instance, when a church decides that now that what was once perversion is now legalized, then it becomes okay. And we see a lot of churches are doing that today. Uh, they, you know, 30 years ago would preach against homosexuality. Now, because uh, the atmosphere is different and it's been legalized, there are those who say we should not preach against that. We should embrace them. So you, you, you see a very similar thing going on today. I think this is what was going on in the Corinthian church. But obviously, all things being lawful for us can't include verses 9 through 10, right? So he must mean legitimate things. All things that God has told us is okay. Paul explains this in Romans 6. So if we read this, keep it in mind our text. I think this will help us understand it. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin... And let's read that as... That the body of sin that I was born with, that controlling nature of sin, that it might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to it, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So that's the essence of Christian liberty, that I no longer have to be dominated by sin that will destroy me. It tells me that this is fun, that I'll be better off doing this. But God who created me says, no, if you live like that, you're actually, it's going to destroy you both now and in eternity. And we've been freed from that. 
verse, starting in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but grace. So now Paul kind of helps us understand that we're not under law, but and we are under grace, but that what that means is not that we've been freed to just do whatever we want to do, but we've been freed to live as God intended us to live, and if we will by faith believe that God loves us, we'll find out that I don't have I have to have all these pleasures of the flesh, you know, that I can, I'll be a lot happier if I live the way God told me to do it. We've been freed from the lies of Satan. <clears throat> the way that we sometimes have put it is that we are free not to sin, whereas before all we could do is sin. Before we were saved, all we could do is sin, but now we've been freed so that I now can serve the Lord with a good motivation and be happy in Him. Titus 2.11, I think, says this very well in verse 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us. So, so the grace of God has appeared. Obviously, he's referring to God's grace in giving us his son to, to pay the penalty for sin, to, to be righteous because we could not be. So that's, a, that's, what, that's what has appeared. God's salvation from sin, right? And Grace, this salvation trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So we live under grace, under the age of grace, but it does not mean that God doesn't really care how we live, just be happy, I want you to be happy. No, God has saved us so we can now live as we should. And it's extremely important for us to understand that. Any talk that being saved has no practical result in a changed life uh, is not a Christian view. Now one danger we have is to try to let the concept of freedom be the overall defining word of our faith rather than serving Christ. And that, that's something that's so easy for Christians to fall into. We take a truth and we run with it. It becomes the defining doctrine in my life. And we forget that the Bible teaches about a lot of things. It's a big book. And we have to be well-rounded and well-grounded in our theology. We can't just take a few doctrines that we really like. And that kind of becomes what defines us. Because that doesn't lead to anything good either. And so, yes, we have been freed from the damnation of sin. And the wrath of God, but that isn't all there is to it, as we tried to explain. We have been delivered from a life that served only self, and that will end up in death. And we've been delivered unto a life that can now serve God as it is intended. So we need to go around speaking of freedom to serve. Not just freedom from hell and death. Not just freedom from pain or freedom from the different things that, that sin causes, where we've been freed so that we can now serve properly. Certainly not we're free to do as I want. 
Now, I've heard people say, and I agree in a sense, and you'll get it, that has to be qualified. There's a sense in which a Christian, as a Christian, I should be able to tell you, yes, do what you want, and that's okay. Because as a Christian, our want, our wanter has been changed. Right? The problem is, is that, yes, I have been changed, so I want to serve the Lord, but in this life, I still have remaining sin. And so, I also want to please the flesh. I'm still tempted to do wrong. So, yes, as a Christian, we do as you want, as long as you, what you want to do is serve the Lord and glorify His name. But understand that not every urge and feeling and thought you have is good. So we have to always be careful there as well. To be clear, we are free from the old covenant restrictions under the Mosaic law. But we were, as Gentiles, we were never under all those things to begin with. So, so one sense to say we've been freed from that is, is not all that, not all, uh, uh, the final word, right? We are freed from man-made rules and traditions. Paul's going to get into that. There's a sense in which I am free in Christ, and when someone comes along and tells me that I've got to do this or that to be a Christian, and it's not in the Bible, well, I'm free from that for sure. We are free to use, what we are free to is to use all things for Christ as we sit, see a fit guided by his word. But we are not free to do just whatever we feel like doing. This is why we are part of a church, that we're under the ministry of the word, and we're accountable to each other because we have that remaining sin. And it's not good for us to just be out there doing whatever we want to do on our own. We need accountability. And I don't care how strong a Christian you are, we all need that. And it's a blessing. I believe we were talking about that in Sunday school a little bit. It, it, God has given us each other. None of us are responsible only to ourselves. So we're surely not free in that sense. And a lot of Christians think that it's just uh, me and the Bible under a tree. This is all I need is me and the Bible. No, we need all the things that God has given us because we're in this body of sin. But all that doesn't necessarily answer the question, how do we exercise our freedom? And part of the confusion is because we have been freed from the law as a covenant over us, as found in the Old Testament. So what law then are we to follow? Because James would talk about us being under the law of Christ. What is there a list that we are to follow? And there are those who say, well, yes, we're under the Ten Commandments. And so they have a list. And you are to follow this list. And if, and if so, why don't we just stick the Mosaic Law, which is what some do. They think that, well, the Christian, we're, we've heard the phrase, the law leads us to Christ. And then once you find Christ, Christ brings us back to the law. That's how we're to live. Well, no, I don't, I don't believe that's true at all. I believe that Christ has become our law. And I'll just kind of say this up front and try to support this as we go through the book. I believe our law, Christ is our law in that now I want to serve Christ. I love him supremely. I want to honor his name above all else. So now my law is what can I do in this world that God has given me, in this life that God has given me, in this situation that God has given me, 
How can I take all this and use it to honor the Lord? And once I, once that becomes my driving motivation, I don't need a list. I just need to love Christ supremely. Now that's a mouthful. And that's hard to do, you know, but I think that's the ultimate goal of what we're looking for. So I don't think Christ takes us back to Moses in order to learn how to be holy. Christ is our example of what holiness is. Now that doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments don't have profit, you know, and they can be helpful, and we'll, I'll deal a little bit with that in just a moment. But I believe Paul's explanation gets to the heart of New Covenant theology, and by that I mean how do we live under, as Christians in this day and age? What is our law? How, do, how What is the rule of life? And so in a sense, I believe he is expounding on Jesus' words of loving God with all of our being and our neighbor as ourself. Whatever serves to glorify God and whatever is good for our neighbor and ourselves will fulfill the law of God. What we find is that this isn't seen in a black and white list that we are to mindlessly follow, but it is to an extent left up to us to work out in love. And a lot of Christians don't like that because that's hard work. You see, if someone says, look, here's a list. This is how you, you can do these things, but you can't do these things. Well, at least that's easy. I know what my duty is. I know what I can't do. I might not like it, but I know what I'm supposed to do, right? But it's hard work to say, okay, look, love Christ with all of your heart and go out and take the things that you find in life and Figure out a way to serve Christ in those things. And that's difficult. But that's maturity in Christ. The gospel always keeps our focus where it needs to be. Am I doing what Christ did for me when he died for me? Because Paul always uses the gospel as the example of living by love. This means there's work for us. The whole the, the Christian life is not just following Ten Commandments. There's, there's much more involved than just that for sure we actually have to meditate upon the word of god we've got to think things through we got to decide we got to think about the decisions we're making is this going to honor christ it, it might be something that somebody else can do and honor christ and it might be something that in my situation i can't do this and that takes thought that takes christian love that takes being able to to have differences with each other and being okay with that and that's why cults, everybody looks the same because they don't like that freedom. Many times it's one of the most difficult things that we're going to do because it's not easy. Because it won't let us coast and get into a rut of rituals and objective rules. And that's one of the problems with trying to reduce the Christian life to rules is because if it's a list of rules, at some point I can say, hey, I'm doing pretty good. And I can look at somebody else and say, well, you're, you know, you're breaking some of these rules. And so I start comparing myself. And, and that's what the danger of looking at it just like that. God says, prove you love me by looking for ways to work out the grace that I have shown you. Be gracious to others because I've been gracious to you. Don't just do no harm, but do good. Which is part of the problem with the Ten Commandments. It tends to look at everything in a negative don't do this, but it doesn't uh, emphasize the things we are to do sometimes. And again, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments, but it's just incomplete when it comes to the Christian life. 
This is why true godliness far exceeds any Old Testament law. Leon Morris says that while many things aren't expressly forbidden, their results are such that they must be ruled out by those who love Christ. There are just some things we will not do because it won't serve the cause of Christ. Immorality, obviously, would be an example of that. And so, as again, as we look at our text in verse 12, is that it's not what Paul is saying. All things are lawful for me, but not everything's helpful. So those things then, at that point, are something I shouldn't be doing. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So there's, there's qualifiers on all these things. We'll get to here in just a second. The first test, he says, is does it honor the Lord? Does it build, help build the kingdom? Not all things are helpful. Not all things are helping the cause of Christ. You might think of a child or a teen who focuses on what he is not to do. You know, it doesn't matter that there's all the things he can eat. When you tell a child you can't have anything in that cookie jar, all he fixates on is that cookie jar. Right? And that's exactly what the world does. We, they, in their, the God's law is written on their minds and their conscience, and they know that these things are wrong, and it's because it's wrong, it's what they want to do, because that's re- what sin does. It causes us to rebel. The question instead should be, what can I do to serve the Lord and serve others? See, the first question is selfish and immature. What can I do? I, I don't, it's not about what I can do, it's why are these things off limits? But the Christian says, my good God, put these things off limit because they will ruin me. They, they will not bring me what they say they will bring. And as we said last week, once we have been given light in life, our whole understanding of life fundamentally changes from serving ourselves to serving the Lord. And Paul tells us that when he judges his activity, he asks, first of all, will this help? In evangelism, what help in building the church? How will it affect me spiritually? Is it helpful? And if it's not helpful, he says, I don't care what anybody else is doing. I can't do this. So to miss his point here, will either lead to dreadful legalism, where our faith is reduced to following rules, and that will in turn lead to endless comparison with others, which will lead to Elevate a elevated view of ourselves. We start comparing ourselves to others, and so either we think I'm doing pretty good compared to that person, which has no bearing on anything, or we think, boy, I can, I'm, I just can't live up to that ideal, and we become depressed and we give up because you, you're you're looking at everything in the completely wrong sense. Or it could lead to antinomianism, as it is with the Corinthian church, and they just cast off any attempts. To be conformed to the image of Christ. Just serve yourself. Because that's what the world's doing. And that just dishonors the testimony of Christ. And the church. It causes others to follow your example. It does great harm to the faith as well. And so does this activity help. What we are trying to do for the Lord. And if not. Then we need to evaluate that very closely. Secondly he says. Will I end up serving it. I will not be, all things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So he qualifies Christian freedom by asking, 
is it something that serves me in serving Christ, or is it something that I will end up serving? And if it's something that uh, I'm going to end up serving it, that I'm going to become addicted to it, then uh, something's wrong here. Look at, uh, we'll look at 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that is being set apart to the Lord, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So the Bible doesn't leave this up for interpretation. This, there is no way sexual immorality can serve God in any way. It can only harm God and yourself. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So clearly there are some things that uh, are, are just addictive, that are uh, something ends up controlling you, and those things clearly are things we must stay away from. Our bodies and everything else is given to us to use for the Lord, and this is something he will finish up later in the chapter. So if something becomes so important to us, or we become addicted to something so that we end up serving it, then we cannot be serving Christ. We can't, and we're not serving others or ourselves in a profitable way. Now, it should go without saying, this doesn't mean that as long as I am moderate in some kind of uh, sinful behavior, that it's okay, as long as I don't become addicted to it. Obviously, that's not what Paul is saying. He is speaking of legitimate things, that the all things uh, that, um, that the Bible doesn't spell out for us, uh, the legitimate things, if it's something that I can't seem to handle, then I had better stay away from that. And there are people, for instance, who they cannot drink alcohol, they can't control it. What, what, I, I had a guy, a guy I know quite well, said, if I have one drink, I just want another. And if, and if you can't control it, then you don't, you need to stay away from it. Because, because it's not gonna, it's not, it's gonna harm the cause of Christ in your testimony. At the same time, if it, if you can enjoy it and, uh, be thankful for it, then there's no, they're wrong with that. And I think that's just a very obvious case of what we're talking about here. So some things can never be done in love or moderation, right? So is this being helpful? And who has who? Those are the first two questions Paul has. Is it helpful? And who exactly has who, right? And notice here that when Paul is explaining how to determine if something is good or bad, he doesn't bring heredity and natural instincts into the conversation. It, it doesn't mean they play no part in it. But just because you are prone to be a certain way, and maybe you clearly got it from your gene pool, it's no excuse to do it. Genetics are never seen as an excuse. And God knew about genetics before we ever did anyway. Unfortunately, modern men doesn't believe in the Bible. It's God's word, and it's written by man, and they didn't understand these things. So uh, we, we we can ignore what the Bible says about all this, these things. Well, that's just liberalism. God knows about all these things when he uh, wrote his word. And so the reality is the question, who do you love more? Do you love the Lord enough to say no to the first thought? Or the first emotion that pops into your mind, to that urge that constantly creeps into this situation or that. Do, do I love Christ enough to, to be able to stop myself and not do what is wrong? He is saying that he is not going to live through life, this is Paul, 
he's saying, I'm not going to live through life constantly making excuses for my behavior, but instead I'm going to figure out how to exalt the Lord even when my body and the old man screams not to. Another way of saying this is that only Christ should be controlling us, which Paul says over and over again. No substance, no lust, no desire, whether it's uh, legitimate or not, should ever be controlling me. I don't live for those things. They are to be my servant to serve the Lord or stay away from it. And that's completely against what the culture is telling us today. Those who say that I do this because this is who I am are in essence saying I'm doing this because I'm a sinner and it's okay. That's how God made me. But you cannot use your fallenness to be an, as an excuse to sin. We're just about done here. We're, but I started late. I, I, it wasn't my fault, right? So it's just so how it is. But I'm just about done. The third qualifier is, uh, or we find over in second or in First First Corinthians ten twenty three, all things are lawful. So There's the third time Paul used that, but not all things are helpful, which he's already said. Then he says, all things are lawful, but here's a third qualifier, but not all things build up. And so we might apply that to how does it affect those around me. Here we're told to look at how it will affect those around me, especially the brothers and sisters in the faith. Does it edify? Does it help somebody? Or is my behavior hurting somebody? And that should be an obvious uh, qualifier to us, right? We'll deal with this more when we get there, but the question isn't necessarily, is this on the list or is it off the list that, that the Bible has um, of things that we can do, but is, but is it always the appropriate thing in any given situation? In other words, there are times when, when what I do affects somebody adversely, and if that's the case, then i got to be very careful about that. In the first two cases, some things hinder the cause of Christ and adversely affect us and should be avoided. Here, the activity hurts those around me. And just by way of example, we'll get to this in chapter 8 with meat offered to idols, right? There's a sense in which Paul says, you can pray over that meat, you can do any kind of magical chant, whatever the heathen wants to do. And we know that there are no gods, so that meat hasn't been changed at all. Eating it or not eating it means nothing. As a Christian, we understand that. But if there's a weak Christian who thinks we still, you know, struggle with idolatry and that meat has been used in a pagan practice and they think that you're, by you eating it, you're participating in idolatry, then you're hurting them if they see you eat that. So don't eat it in front of them, right? So think about what's going on around you. Your, your weaker brother hasn't quite understood this, and they would take it the wrong way. And so under those circumstances, there are, certain, there are times when it might be lawful, might, might be okay, but there are times when it might not be. So what is the common ground in all three qualifiers? And with this I finish. The main concept that makes something right to do or wrong to do is whether it serves the purposes of Christians, the purposes of Christianity, the purposes of Christ. 
yes, the Bible sometimes lays it out very clearly, right and wrong, and that takes care of it. But does it do that in everything? And again, I think it's purposeful so that we don't, if, if, if every activity was regulated for us, we would not be thinking. We would just do our duty. We wouldn't have any reason to think about it. But when I'm forced to examine everything I do and how it affects my love for Christ and does it serve his purposes, that is a spiritually mature thing to do. That is something that causes, that, that helps us in our Christian walk. Yes, some things are listed to give us some idea of how to judge everything else. But we, like, like verses 9 through 10, it gives us an overall, those are obvious examples of what we've been talking about. But we don't ever have a complete list of scripture because as Christians you shouldn't need a complete list. You shouldn't need a detailed list of what you should can do or what you can't do. So verse 12 is the list, I believe, the law for Christians. If we have a mature, if we're mature in our love for Christ, we will start living more and more for Him and not for ourselves. And more and more for others and not for ourselves. The law here, with Paul's qualifier, verse 12 to me, if you get that right, and there's other We'll see in just a second. There are other verses that are helpful here too. But if you get this right, you begin to understand what being a Christian is all about. It's not just certain moral behavior. It's a heart attitude. It's a life driven by the right kind of heart. All these Corinthians heard is that they aren't under law, that they're free in Christ. And they ran with that half-truth into all sorts of wickedness. And so with this in mind, we'll finish by looking at some verses here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't have this, uh, yeah. Turn over, if you turn to chapter 3, I didn't have it on the screen. I wanted us to turn to that and just read them. We read verse 23. 1 Corinthians 23, and with this we're done. So he said, verse 24 says, Now with this in mind, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. So we see that doesn't mean that you, I can never seek my own good, but as a Christian, in God, looking for what is right and what is wrong, that is a guiding principle. I'm not, see, I'm not just seeking my own good, but also the good of my neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so I, I think that's what Paul says. Look, every, God made everything. Everything is ours. But there's qualifications to how we use those things. And then lastly, in verse, start down in verse 31. Let's read to the end of the chapter. So, what's the conclusion of all this? Whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, you are the glory of God. And you've got it. Give no offense to Jew or to the Greek or to the church of God. So there you see one of the qualifiers. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So it's about the gospel. It's about the kingdom building. And uh, while I've got to make sure that that is the guiding principle in what I do, and that is my 
guide the holiness, if I guide the godliness, that's my list. Is it something I could serve the Lord with? Is it something I could be thankful for? If not, for me it's wrong, right? The Bible is clear, black and white about a lot of things, but that's where Christian freedom, that's another aspect of Christian freedom. You are free to serve the Lord. You've got to answer to the Lord. And you've got, and I've got to allow that. And I've got to give you that. And you've got to give it to me. And yet, that never, uh, succeed, or, uh, what I want. The, the, yet, where the Bible does make it clear, we have to accept that and we do hold each other accountable to those things the Bible does make clear. I know I covered a lot of stuff in there. It's a vast subject. It's an important subject. And I hope that we have at least laid a foundation as we uh, move forward in the book. Any questions or comments?